Hello, AJT readers. This is Josh Levitsky, and this is your December AJT Highlights podcast. I'd like to welcome everybody. Today, we have, as always, Roz Manon from the University of Nebraska Medical Center. And today, we also have Raphael Meyer, who is a transplant surgeon at University of Maryland and um, doing the AJT Fellowship. So I'd like to welcome you both. As always, we'll go through the podcast articles. I'm going to just read them off, and then um, we'll go right into discussing them individually. So the first paper is going to be discussed by Raphael. is entitled Liver Transplantation from Active COVID-19 Donors, a a Life-Saving Opportunity Worth Grasping by Romagnoli et al. And then the next paper is entitled Cellular and Humoral Immune Responses After mRNA-1273 SARS-CoV-2 Vaccine and Liver and Heart Transplant Recipients by Herrera et al. And there's a paired editorial in addition. Then I will be discussing a paper entitled Changes in Mediators of Survival Disparity Among Black Liver Transplant Recipients in the United States by Lee et al. with an editorial also uh, paired to that paper. Then I'll be discussing graft-versus-host disease after liver transplantation is associated with bone marrow failure, hemophagocytosis, and DNMT3A mutations by Newell et al. with a paired editorial. And last but not least, Roz will be discussing outcomes at three years post-transplant in lymphidase desensitized kidney transplant patients by Kelman et al. with also an editorial. So we have lots to discuss. Let's get started. Um, Raphael, welcome to the podcast, and uh, feel free to get started on the first paper. Thank you very much, Josh and Rose. Um, so first paper is the Italian study by the Romagnoli et al. In this article, this investigators from Italy report a series of 10 liver transplants performed using active COVID-19 doctors. So what do we know so far is that Several recipients died after receiving lung transplant from COVID-positive donors, and most regulatory authorities initially recommended against the use of any organs from COVID-positive donors. And where do we go from there? So in this paper, we can talk a little bit about the donors they used. They they described the use of 10 donors. Uh, Five donors were SARS-CoV-2, RNA positive in the nasopharyngeal swab with pneumonia or anosmia and fever uh, within the 20 within 21 days before the organ recovery. And the five remaining donors tested positive for COVID in the BAL at recovery without any variable history to determine if the, the timeline of the past symptoms of COVID-19. <clears throat> And actually, none of these donors died uh, of COVID-19 or COVID-19 complications. The causes of death were mainly trauma or cerebrovascular in nature. And they also, went once they got the organ, they actually did a biopsy from the livers that they were using. And they in none of the, the donors and the, the liver, they could identify COVID-19 RNA. What about the recipients? So they had five patients who had a history of severe COVID-19, 
which required uh, hospitalization, oxygen supplementation. Uh, three patients were affected with by mild COVID-19 symptoms, and the two remaining patients had positive IgG against SARS-CoV-2 and kind of unde undefined history of fatigue uh, during the previous month. So all the candidates were negative at the time of transplant, uh, except one patient was kind of indeterminate with um, negative in the nasal uh, pharyngeal swab, but positive in the BAL. IgG against COVID was positive in 80% of the recipients and 71% had uh, neutralizing uh, antibodies. None of the unrolled subjects uh, actually had any sort of vaccination during the study period. And uh, an interesting thing also to, to mention is what kind of immunosuppression they used. They were pretty standard and they just, uh, I think they just used basiliximab for induction whenever needed and attack uh, in two patients, steroids, mycophenolate, mofetil, and I think just one had uh, everolimus. And now, uh, going to the main thing, the outcomes, and they had a median follow-up of 221 days, and they actually had one patient dying after 75 days post-transplant, and this was due to sepsis, due to a multi-drug-resistant bacteria, and this, interestingly, it was the only patient with the melt above 25. In this case, it was 35. So it was kind of an outlier with starting with a high melt. And just of note, one of the patients had a HCC recurrence during the follow-up in the lung, but that was not really, probably not related to the, with the COVID. Um, so the conclusion is probably it's, it, according to them, it's, it's kind of safe to use the slivers from COVID-positive donors, but it's based on a very small series. But at least in this series, they didn't find any severe uh, consequences using a patient with either COVID recovered or, or who had some sort of immunity against COVID. So the limitation I would say is that for the liver biopsy, the PCR and the liver biopsy, they did not really show that they could they could have a positive control for that to demonstrate that it's possible to find COVID using this middle in the liver. So the consequence was a little bit, it was not possible to say if the organ used were completely COVID negative, or if there was a protective effect or protective immunity in this recipient. And it's impossible to say. So, and the other limitation is that this is valid for livers, but it might not be valid for other organs. Overall, I find this article very encouraging and because it shows at least for very small series that transplantation of non-thoracic organs from COVID-19 positive donors is feasible and um, it's probably doable. It's probably a path to explore. I think, um, thanks, that's a great summary. Um, I think Dr. Grossi was alluding to these data when they did a webinar a few months, a couple of months ago about COVID positive, because as you know, we're all just struggling now with brain dead donors, many of whom are have active COVID or at least testing positive. Did they mention if they thought that this serological status, was that related to past infection, I presume, since they weren't vaccinated, correct? 
And, and if that is, is that right? And, and is that protective in some way or they didn't mention that? I mean, I'm just talking out loud. I don't know. So they, <clears throat> what they what they said is that 80 uh, percent. So, uh, I'm sorry, 71 percent of the, the, the this donor, this uh, recipient had neutralizing antibodies. So somehow they, they expect that most of these patients were they could prove that they they are able to fight against COVID. And also by definition, they didn't have COVID like 10 years prior. It was it was within the very recent, I have to say. So I would say the one of the main point also is that how close can you go? When do you think a person is like sufficiently recovered from COVID? Is that even safe to give induction or any immunosuppression? Rather yeah. than are you going to infect them with the new liver? Because this is kind of unlikely because the trophism of the virus it does not seem to be in the liver. Yeah, I think that's the the interesting part compared to thoracic, of course. And, um, you know, the, the liver injury that occurs in people with COVID that we see all the time is really not believed to be viral uh, cytopathic effect. It's um, there's, there's sepsis and there's inflammation and there's lots of drugs on board and and um, it's not they haven't really been able to determine that the virus is causing problem in the liver. So it would sort of make sense that this would work, although they didn't obviously test these in, in negative recipients, you know, uh, but I, I think that would be a little bold to do at this point. But but at least, um, you know, it's just showing that that this can be this can be done. And I, I think this is going to be. This is a. I think the important part of this paper, while it's a small study, it's uh, something we're going to be seeing more and more and more as we move on. We're going to have people recovering from prior infection or vaccinated, and there's going to be positive donors out there. So I, I think that was a, it was a helpful initial study to report on this, and and uh, I'm sure there'll be more with larger sample size. Great. All right. So next on another COVID. Uh, Study in liver and heart transplant recipients. Yes, <clears throat> this is the paper by uh, Herrera from Barcelona. So, in this study, the investigators <clears throat> actually vaccinated 104 solid organ transplant recipients and followed humoral but also cellular response uh, to COVID 19. Um, and they used the Moderna vaccine. What do we know about that specific topic? We know that in large series reported so far, only some of the series reported only 17% of the patient uh, developed humoral response at a median of 20 days after the first dose and 50%, 54% of the, after the second dose in the initial papers in, in transplanted immunosuppressed patients. And we also know that cellular response was not yet analyzed according to the others in solid organ recipients. So their setting was that they actually studied 58 liver and 46 heart uh, recipients and administered two doses of Moderna vaccine. The median time uh, from transplantation to vaccine was around five years and I IgM, IgG antibodies and early spots against the aspartame were assessed after four weeks after receiving the second dose. So 
again, very important, what are what, what is the immunosuppression we're talking about here in this setting, the immunosuppression was based on steroids with occasional, occasional use of basiliximab for induction and other uh, maintenance were tacrolimus, MMF and steroids and a couple of mTORs. The kind of the outcome, if you want to say the response to the vaccine was that 38% of the liver transplant recipients had antibodies after the first dose, 71% after the second dose. 11% of the heart transplant recipients had antibodies after the third dose, so quite lower, and 57 after the second dose. Then comes the, the cellular part. In, in this part, 86% of the liver transplant recipients had S protein positive at a spot after uh, the second dose of the vaccine. Here, they did not check that as they did for antibodies after the first dose, after the second dose. They just did only after the second dose. And 70% of the heart transplant recipients had this uh, positive early spot after the second dose. So if you combine everything, it means that 94 of these patients, which means like 90% of the patient had either immoral or cellular or both response uh, after getting the Moderna vaccine. And I think it's also interesting to mention that 13% of the hearts and 7% of the livers did not develop any kind of response to the vaccine. Another point that was highlighted in the article is that they didn't have any major side effect from the vaccine, uh, mainly uh, pain in, in the, at the injection sites. But really, one of the worries that we had is that they, oh my God, this patient's going to develop DSAs after they get a vaccine. This is not the case. They, they checked, and I, from what I read in the article, none of the patients developed uh, DSAs after getting a vaccine. What about the factors associated with the poor response? Because we want to know what we, we need to, how we can identify those patients. So what they say is that hypogammaglobulinemia and vaccination within the first year after liver transplant and the use of uh, mycophenolate in the, in the maintenance immunosuppression were all significantly associated with the lack of humoral response in liver transplant recipients, if you want to talk about liver transplant recipients. So, and the, one of the thing that comes over and over is this hypogammaglobulinemia. So can we really do something about it? I'm not sure, but we can screen those patients and kind of identify those who are at risk and might need additional protection, uh, uh, protective measures. They conclude, they conclude that the vaccine was safe and kind of effective to monitor adequate immune response. And again, that identifying these patients is very important because the very few, like the 10, the, the 7, 13% of patients who did not get any response, maybe those patients you want to recommend for stricter uh, measures to uh, to avoid being in contact with COVID-19. And the limitations were, to my opinion, is that they did not really uh, follow up on the development of COVID-19 itself in this patient. So what would be interesting is to kind of like follow a little more long-term, I think, because they had a, a kind of a shorter a follow-up, they couldn't do it, but it would be interesting to, for this patient to have a follow-up study and to say, 
these patients developed this and that amount of COVID in this in this population. There was also a long interval between transplant and getting the COVID vaccine. And as we all know, the further away you are from transplant, the more the closer from a normal human being you are because you're increasing immunosuppression levels. And this is really important for the, the, the newly transplant patients. Or is this safe? Is this effective? So all kind of depends on how far they are from transplant. And the last thing is that in in, our, in overall, I think you know it was very encouraging data because uh, they can show that uh, just with two doses we can get some sort of immunity at least in in the vast majority of those patients, which is a positive message. That was terrific, uh, Raphael. Thank thank you for being. So comprehensive and also giving your own uh, opinions on what you thought about the paper. I think what's certainly makes this interesting is this added uh, evaluation of the cellular response, you know, because we've always kind of heard about that and we need to be more comprehensive than just antibodies. And I think this provides some more reassurance that you're not just developing antibodies, but that there is a, um, you know, that the cellular uh, portion of the um you know, adaptive immune response is also activated by the vaccination. So that that's that's reassuring. It would be interesting to see this, as you mentioned, in in more immunosuppressed patients or or on antibody therapies or other T cell B cell uh, inhibiting therapies. You know, as as sort of uh, an assessment, just to to generalize it a little more, and and also in in you know kidney transplant, etc. But this is this is I think re- reassuring to some degree, especially only after two uh, vaccinations. Yeah, I agree. But definitely, the kidney word is different because they're closer from transplant; they're much more immunosuppressed. Yeah, great. So maybe we should uh, thank you, Raphael. I, I wanted to mention. I figured I'd mention this now. Um, we are doing an extra podcast this month for the readers out there that is going to be focused on specifically on vaccine mandates and the ethics behind it in the organ transplant population. We have a number of invited guests, including uh, Olivia Cates, Ben Hippen, Emily Blumberg, myself and Roz will be on. So it's going to be an addition this month that we thought it was, there's a number of papers that are coming out about this that we thought it would, it deserves a separate podcast. So anything else to say there, Roz? No, I think these two papers are sort of a great intro to the yeah. topic because the frequency of COVID positive donors is increasing, at least in the U.S. And many programs are uncomfortable. They're having high prevalence now in the Midwest. We don't know if it's Omicron or not uh, and significant vaccine hesitancy. And so, you know, we're kind of out there in space worrying if we're making things worse. I mean, certainly the immunosuppression piece is problematic and certainly in kidney world two doses is often not enough and so pre-transplant i think those patients don't do it like normal patients but the dialysis population the skd population does reasonable but we could wax on more poetic but we'll keep it for december right our december podcast and josh and i will be wearing flak jackets and holding (laughs) order yeah that's right All right. Well, let's get a move on. I have two liver papers to discuss that I think are very uh, different from each other and very interesting. So 
The first one from the USC group, Brian Lee is the lead author, uh, which really looked at whether race was a impacted survival and liver transplant recipients sort of in the last 20 years since MELD was introduced. And um, I was kind of surprised a study this uh, large and comprehensive hadn't been done until now. And um, I'm glad they did it because there were some uh, important findings and messages that came from this this work. Um, essentially, we've known long that uh, Black patients have lower post-transplant survival um, much of this goes back to back into the 80s and 90s. There was a paper published in The Lancet that the authors highlight in, in 2002 that showed this, that blacks versus white and Hispanics had lower post-transplant survival, post-liver transplant survival, which was attributed um, to um, a higher level of illness at the time of transplant and more rejection. And of course, we've gone into the MELD system that has more equalized level of illness to some degree across the different um, ethnicities. And uh, we have better immunosuppression regimens in general than we used to. So the question is, is after MELD, is this still true in the last 20 years? They noted that targeted interventions to racial disparities have improved outcomes in kidney transplant recipients. And I want to ask you about that, Roz, after I uh, finish the review of this. But there haven't been the same type of um, interventions in the liver transplant population. And so um, what they did is they looked between 2002 and 2018 at UNOS. They limited the study to non-Hispanic Black, non-Hispanic White, and Hispanic liver transplant recipients. There were a number of uh, groups that were excluded to keep it more homogeneous. So they removed HIV positive, those with MELD exceptions, living donor recipients. Um, they also removed hepatitis C virus as the listing or transplant diagnosis to make it more relevant to today, essentially, where we don't really see hepatitis C causing um, end-stage liver disease much of anymore. And they looked at all these patients. There were almost 400, uh, or I'm sorry, 47,000 liver transplant recipients included in the study cohort. And they kind of looked across 17 different sub-cohorts assigned by year. And they also divided it sort of in half between 2002 and 2009, and then 2010 to 2018, just to look at some trends over time by year, but also by sort of by each kind of seven-year increment. They noted that uh, blacks were younger and higher severity of illness than whites and Hispanics, less likely to have private insurance and more likely to have Medicaid. They did all sorts of survival estimates, those estimated by race, those where they looked at age-adjusted probability of death by transplant year and race. They also performed an adjusted Cox proportional hazards model to look at an adjusted um, assessment of whether that black race was independently associated with higher risk. Essentially, what they found is that across all of these analyses, that blacks indeed had worse post-liver transplant survival than whites, and actually Hispanics had best post-transplant survival of anybody, which was sort of an interesting finding and maybe unexpected. Um, it, it was used as a comparator group, but they actually had better survival than white patients. When they looked specifically at white, what might be causing this, this is where it's difficult to determine in UNOS, especially with 
the large amount of data, but not a lot on sort of the mediators or the granularity you would need to, to determine why, why we are seeing worse survival. But the strongest mediators in the, in the black population were alcoholic liver disease and, pu- and having public insurance. And they noted that alcoholic liver disease was increasing significantly in the black population, much higher than in the white or Hispanic population in terms of indications for liver transplantation. So that's a real uh, issue that's increasing. The other thing is they looked at, um, I I mentioned the two eras between um, 2002 and 2009 versus 2010 to 2018. And there was actually an improvement kind of an unexplained improvement in post-transplant survival for black patients in the first era, but it's gotten way worse in the last uh, decade. And it's they postulate, it's not quite clear, but they're, one of the theories is maybe alcoholic liver disease increasing. Um, they also, it's possible that, you know, the hepatitis C cure may have improved outcomes in white patients more than than black patients. Um, this is something, you know, more in the last, you know, five to seven years. Certainly they found that rejection leading to graft failure was higher in black patients. Um, although it was only a small percentage that related to, uh, or, or was the etiology. There was a, a nice editorial actually from, um, our group here at Northwestern, um, uh, Danae Simpson and, uh, Nick Mazumder, who basically what it comes down to, this is a very important finding. But they, the exact reasons for it are not quite clear. And that's certainly a call for, and there's always a call for this in UNOS to have more collection of data of social determinants of health and more granular data to understand why this may be occurring so that we can target interventions um, to make this better. It's, uh, it's certainly a, a disparity that is of concern. I'm interested, maybe Roz, if you had the perspective from, from kidney transplant, as they mentioned some uh, interventions and some studies that have shown that there's been some legislation reducing economic barriers for, for kidney transplant patients and that the survival gap has, has lessened between blacks and whites in kidney transplant. And I'm just wondering if you have any um, reflection sure, on I, that. Yeah, um, I, um... I'm always surprised when people think the kidney is doing great because we always see the glass half, half empty. So there's several things that they're alluding to, I believe. One is that Medicare coverage changed during the Clinton administration. Many of you maybe had been in high school or maybe not in the no. US at the time, but <laughs> but the Clinton administration was in the midnight was in the late nineties, early two thousand was when he left office. But one of the things that that administration did is it changed Medicare coverage for post-transplant care, specifically beyond the, there's a three-year standard Medicare Mm -hmm. coverage for immunosuppression, but they made a change. If you were over 65 or you were disabled, you could have indefinite Medicare coverage for your meds. And so that's one contribution. And of course, the the most recent of that is that, that that bill, there's a law now that has changed that entirely that everyone is eligible if all they have is Medicare eligibility. The this time span that we're talking about also includes, I think, an overall shift in immunosuppression. Now, we always, when I get up in lecture, say, we do the same thing we did for the last 20 years. And that is kind of true. But I think that there was a more, you know, the 2000s was when we started using much more T-cell depletion. You know, Campath had some hotness and rabbit ATG 
And also there was a real shift towards tacrolimus from, from cyclosporin. And so that was felt to be an immunologically significant uh, improvement for all patients, but in particular African-Americans that were deemed to biologically have significant disparities in terms of uh, HLA matching, which is another issue I'll mention in a second, but also perhaps being more sensitized or having more diseases like lupus and, and having uh, more difficulty with, with uh, sensitization. Uh, and there was also a change in UNOS um, in 2003, eliminating HLA-B matching, which facilitated probably I don't know, probably about 25% more patients getting transplanted. This affected African-Americans more because of the differences in HLA that exist ethnically. It's not a structural thing, but it's ethnically. And, and again, over time, with all this constant um, lobbying, there's been sort of more access to transplant and, and more emphasis on patients getting transplant, which I think will continue um, over this coming decade. So, you know, and now there's also an understanding about outcomes is are the donor kidneys these individuals are received. Is there an implication of, of APOL1 high risk variants in terms of their outcome of their new transplant? Or is it all coming with the transplant if they're getting a, an African-American donor kidney and maybe that has uh, had a biological basis for inferior outcomes? So certainly it's more than you know, the structural social aspects, which I think are significant. I mean, I was in a program in the Deep South, and it there are some major barriers in terms of being able to get to the medical center, transportation, you know, being able to afford your medicines in particular, I think was one. And, and again, without Medicare expansion in states like the Deep South, where they were reluctant to do that, patients had to be literally very indigent, like in order to afford to get Medicaid coverage to cover their medications because Medicaid and Medicare are, are different. So I'm shocked. I was shocked when I read this. I mostly read the uh, abstract and the editorial to see that the disparity worsened. So again, I, I am really struck by that. And, and maybe it is a difference in the diseases associated and outcomes, but to be, I yeah. guess it's another. Well, it sounds continued. like we, uh, in the liver world, we need to follow some of the measures that were done in kidney and pay closer attention to it. Certainly, you know, we, we have um, Dr. Simpson, who wrote the editorial here. Have, we have an African-American transplant program, a specific program for the population, as well as a Hispanic program, and encourage other programs to really have more, uh, you know, dedication, uh, dedicated resources towards specific population, underserved populations. And certainly, um, this is an area that we need to pay attention to. So, very helpful paper. Okay, I'm just going to quickly go over this uh, next one, which was, I thought, really interesting from a pathophysiologic and mechanistic point of view. Um, this is the GVHD paper after liver transplantation and the association with it in hemophagocytosis and mutations that have been associated with HLH. Uh, GVHD is, of course, um, an immune-mediated disorder that occurs after allogeneic transplantation in which the donor T-cells attack uh, or recognize the host antigens and, and, uh, that are expressed by APCs and uh, cause injury. And in liver transplant, it has a very high mortality rate um, of over 80 to 90%. Um, it's about 1% per year. So you'll, if you're in a busy program, you'll see maybe one case a year 
of this, but um, you know when it happens, it's usually a poor outcome. And and the manifestation is as um, basically it's kind of the reverse rejection in a way. So the liver is completely normal because it's the liver is the organ that is kind of leaking out the passenger lymphocytes, and uh, the organs affected are the skin, uh, the GI system, and the bone marrow. And especially when there's bone marrow failure, is these patients have. Uh, invariably die from this and have die from generally from sepsis because of um, severe neutropenia, leukopenias. And so this group um, was interested in, in looking at maybe a connection between GVHD and hemophagocytosis in part because we've long known that GVHD has been associated with very high ferritin levels, some, some in the range of, of HLH. And the thought here was to try to find some patho pathophysiological tie to, to these two conditions. And so they had um, a number of patients, uh, not that many, but they had nine patients who had graft-versus-host disease after liver transplant and analyzed their um, peripheral blood and their bone marrow aspirates, especially their, their bone marrow aspirates, for signs of hemophagocytosis but also looking for specific mutations that have been associated with HLH uh, gene mutations by performing next-generation sequencing. And the specific mutations are called CHIP mutations, which is clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential. And these are um, clones with, uh, or these are clones with myeloid or lymphoid uh, neoplasm-associated genetic mutations. And so um, it's sort of on the spectrum of a hematopoietic neoplasm, but not just yet, but sort of a, a hyperinflammatory uh, hematopoietic state. And one of the uh, key mutations is, is in this uh, DNA methyltransferase uh, mutation that is sort of a thought to be kind of a um, epigenetic marker and also perhaps a tumor suppressor gene. So a mutation of it might lead to this hyperproliferation. So they looked at um, 12 bone marrow biopsies of nine patients, and they found, and they compared it to those who did not have a graft-versus-host disease, uh, liver transplant recipients, and they found that um, a higher percentage of the patients who had graft-versus-host disease had uh, evidence. In fact, all of them except one had increased hemophagocytosis in, in their bone marrow aspirates. And most of them had very high ferritin levels um, between 1,200 and, and 40,000. Then looking at the gene sequencing, they found that they were able to get adequate DNA for seven patients and found that five of them had this mutation in DNMT3A, which is a DNA methyltransferase, as I mentioned, whereas in the those who had no GVHD only had only one of them had this mutation. So small numbers, but it was statistically significant. And so um, the, the why does this matter? And I think there's a really nice editorial from, from the University of Pittsburgh, uh, Paul Sabolks, if I'm saying his name right, who essentially uh, brought this into kind of a, a clinical spectrum, which is there are targeted treatments for graft-versus-host disease after solid organ transplant that have been very effective in uh, including JAK1 and 2 inhibitors, and there's a there's a monoclonal antibody called Mepalumab, a monoclonal antibody that binds and neutralizes interfer interferon gamma that was actually approved for pediatric and adult patients with HLH. 
And so um, this is important because this disease ha is ultimately fatal in most patients. And if this, um, with larger studies, if there's a mechanistic tie with HLH, then perhaps um, there should be some investigational studies on some of these drugs like the JAK-STAT inhibitor or this interferon gamma inhibitor in, in these patients who really have uh, little, we have little to offer. In fact, what we do now is what I remember in my fellowship, which is seeing these patients 20 years ago, that you either go up or down on immunosuppression, and most of the time it doesn't work. I thought this was really interesting um, mechanistically. Certainly, a lot more needs to be done than just nine patients, but certainly is compelling to do more work here and to, to find some novel, novel therapies um, to, to treat these patients. So certainly, Josh, your comments about the rarity, you know, if you do more, you see more. So I've seen yeah. three of these cases in my extended career. One was a KP, and it was hypothesized that having the small bowel there, you know. Yeah, more lymphocytes. Um, small yeah, bowel, you see it too. Yeah. Um, and then I, a couple of once with a kidney, and then one was a redo kidney. Um, and God, we threw the book at that person. I want to say we gave him Anakinra. And, you know, we were we saw the ferritin and we were saying, oh, you know, um, but um, again, this is very interesting and it would be great. I hope they will follow this up with more, you know, a registry or gathering yeah. cases, because I think the combined effort, I had no idea there was an associated mutation with this. I mean, that's my ignorance. So this, no, this is it's not your ignorance. This. this is the initial report. So. <laughs> this is it's 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 a fascinating uh, phenomenon. Yeah, and I've seen probably maybe seven or eight cases just because liver we do see it, you know, yeah. periodically. Okay, well, why don't we finish up with your the the kidney transplant paper that? So I, I'm always in the I'm always at the end position and, and try to wrap up very quickly. But this is um. A follow-up report um, from Kelman and colleagues, their Hansa and some other of the principal investigators of the IDAS study, the Lifidase study. As many of you may recall, in other manuscripts submitted by this group in the New England Journal and the AJT, patients that are highly sensitized are often disadvantaged in terms of being able to tra be transplanted. 35% of those with a CPRA greater than 99.9% may not ever find an organ. And certainly about half of those with a CPRA of greater than 80 may, may have to wait more than three years. And so this is a follow-up of four separate studies done with, the, with this medication. IDES is a protein enzyme it's derived from immunoglobulin degrading enzyme from uh, streptiogenes. It rapidly cleaves after injection Ig immunoglobulin into Fab2 fragments and an FC fragment. So it really mitigates uh, antibodies effect both through antibody dependent cytotoxicity and complement mediated cytotoxicity. It works really within an hour. Interestingly, it can deplete all immunoglobulin in, in a human but those levels start coming back after about a week and peak in about 14 days. So the goal of this study was to combine this heterogeneous patient population of four studies shown in figure one to discuss the outcomes of these people at three years. They ended up with 46 patients from these four feeder studies, so to speak. They only were able to evaluate uh, 30, and that's really because there were some, uh, there were three deaths, there were three graft failures, but also patients couldn't be found or contacted or declined to participate. Um, 
And I, I think that's, again, representative of the fact that the original studies were only like quick six-month studies of desensitization of highly sensitized patients. Interestingly, in the original cohort studies, they ended up with six individuals that actually had negative cross matches before treatment. I'm not sure about how that happened, but I will throw that out that they are not included in this analysis. So of the 39 total patients that were left, uh, a third of those individuals had a, an episode of antibody media rejection and two thirds did not. And so they kind of followed, they kind of reported on all the outcomes you would think are relevant. For example, uh, overall patient survival of these 39 patients at three years was 90% with a graph survival of 84%. So pretty impressive that there was an association of worse patient survival in those with ABMR, but that relationship was inverted for graph survival, which doesn't exactly to make make sense. Um, estimated GFR was significant, was about a mean at three years of 55 mils per minute per 1.73 meters squared. However, um, it was significantly higher when you broke down those that had antibody beta rejection post-transplant versus not. It was about 15 mils or so higher in those that did not have ABMR. So again, why those with ABMR had better graph survival, I'm not sure I get that. They also show you a lot of kinetics of these patients' DSAs that you can follow the immunodominant DSA based on MFI, showing that there is a relationship between pre-transplant DSA with the out likelihood of ABMR. Again, in these highly sensitized patients, you know, very high PRAs with an incompatible organ. And so ABMR positive were like 13,000 MFI for the most immunodominant versus 6,000. And then the incidence of ABMR was predominantly in the first year, 38%, the vast majority within two weeks. And again, if you look at the kinetic figure on page 55, and then they expanded in page seven with more examples, you see these rebounds of DSA in the first couple of weeks after this drug is administered. You might ask why they didn't give more of this drug. This is a foreign protein and people develop uh, antibodies to it. So it's not feasible to give it more than once. And also they did a sub-analysis at the very end of patients that had a 99.9% .9 PRA. Again, the people unlikely to ever find somebody compatible, you know, indicating that their outcomes were really not horrific, as you might imagine. And certainly, I guess the estimated GFR overall in this group was about 60, so a little bit better. 92% graft survival, wouldn't argue with that. That sounds pretty good. 38% had antibody media rejection of these very, very highly uh, reactive patients. And then they were all successfully treated. These ABMRs were treated with the usual Plex, IVIG, a little Retox, maybe Eculizumab, a splenectomy was thrown in in some of these cases. But again, sort of a positive outcome. I think the authors did a great job in stressing the challenges in this patient population. This is not programmatic efforts done at every medical center in the country. Uh, they recognize that the wait times in this patient population are much longer. They're probably close to seven years. Those with greater than 80% CPRI will probably wait about four. So the more accumulated dialysis waiting time you have or CKD waiting time is associated with more comorbidity, frailty, worse vascular disease, and the greater risks of negative outcomes like infection and malignancy. There was increased rejection. It did seem to respond. And really, a couple of interesting points that I just want to emphasize that 
the rebound, when you look at these DSAs, the rebound overall of the antibody never exceeded the level of the baseline, which I found fascinating. I don't know why, but it, and, and also when you look at the overall pattern over three years, all of these individuals over time, that level goes down and down and down. It never just sort of pops back up. Again, these patients are pretty immunosuppressed long-term, but I thought that was quite interesting. There are some limitations. There was an associated editorial that also points some of these out by um, Carrie Shinstock and my colleague in that timber at your institution, Josh. Again, this is a heterogeneous study. It's four different studies. There may be selection bias of who's sticking around um, and being followed up. There was no long-term outcomes like transplant glomerulopathy. They didn't mention proteinuria or biopsy or vasculopathy, which may be likely to occur in this kind of a patient population. You know, and that points out that, you know, a CPRA of 99.9 can mean a lot of things, but it, it can really vary. And, and the titer of antibodies may vary. If you're positive, you could have a low titer antibody that hits the criteria to be positive enough, but it may vary from someone else who has the same specificity, but much, much higher tighter. And so it's hard to know the relative risks of these patients. And, you know, pointing out the use of flow cross-match and even CDC cross-match might be valuable in this patient population, although you have to have donor cells. And some labs don't keep donor cells sticking around or may not have that opportunity. And again, the editorial reminds us that, you know, the long-term outcomes of this patient population is chronic antibody-mediated rejection. And even though the levels are low, have they had sort of irreversible glomerular endothelial injury over time? So, um, you know, if we could maybe compare, they said apples and oranges, if, if knowing that the input is so heterogeneous, it's harder to pick, you know, a specific notion of, okay, well, I'm going to use this medication. I think that the community, there's programs that use, that do desensitization. A lot have now moved and shifted towards those individuals that might find a compatible donor, but there's clearly a population where they're not going to find a compatible donor unless we clone them are not happening. And I don't think the pig kidney is going to be the answer because these highly sensitized, super sensitized people will have anti-SLA and they'll cross-react. So unless you knock out every gene on the cell surface and then I don't know what'll happen. But anyway, that's what I have to say. Sounds like yeah, it's still a very significant unmet need. We'll see where this therapy plays out over time. So great. So thank you all. And just once again, we'll have another podcast this month, uh, a special one on vaccine mandates. And then we'll have Usher in the 2022 with the next um, full podcast um, in January. So thank you, everyone. And we have a good December and new year. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 